Thank you, Andy, for that warm introduction, and thank you for having me today. Uh, I'll admit I was a little bit nervous uh, because this is actually my first time preaching on a Sunday, uh, but to see many familiar faces here uh, is uh, a very comforting uh, to see people that I knew from college and from San Diego and whatnot to be here. And so thank you again uh, for the opportunity. Uh, before we begin, just wanted to share a quick story. Uh, when Pastor John asked me to preach on uh, today uh, during the ACBC conference, I had to remind him uh, that uh, back in San Jose, uh, almost 10 years ago, actually, uh, when he was doing the uh, flying up and down back and forth, uh, he had actually missed a flight. And after discussing with the leadership group up there, uh, because I had actually preached for the college group uh, that week, they were going to ask me to preach that Sunday. Uh, but, you know, God was sovereign and that I had missed the phone call uh, that Pastor John had uh, when he called. And afterwards, uh, they were able to find somebody else to preach. And afterwards, I told Pastor John, well, I felt like I dodged a bullet. Uh, well, 10 years later, that bullet came back around, and here I am. Uh, but, and I am thankful and uh, to have the opportunity to preach to you today. Uh, before we begin, let me go ahead and read uh, James once more. Uh, so if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn with me to the book of James, chapter 1. And I'm actually going to start reading in verse 1, and I'll just go through verse 4. James chapter 1, uh, starting in verse 1, it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for gathering here, uh, gathering us here together, uh, that we can worship and praise your name uh, through the songs that we've seen, uh, songs that we've sang, and uh, the, the word that we're about to dive into. We pray, Lord, that our hearts would be open, not just to listen, uh, but as it says in later in James, to be a doer of the word, that we understand that that's not just because we're doing stuff, that we're just acting out your truth, uh, but that that's who we are as believers, that we're not just people who do Christianity, but that we are doers of your truth. And so, Father, we thank you uh, for this time and for the opportunity. Uh, may you work through me uh, to preach uh, faithfully uh, so that you may be glorified. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So as Pastor Andy mentioned, I uh, lead our college group back in, San, uh, back in San Diego. And for this school year, we have been going over the book of James. Uh, and I want to go ahead and give you uh, some context as to why we chose the book of James, and that's because James is generally agreed to be the first epistle written in the New Testament. It was written during a time where in this new covenant stage of, a, uh, of what it means to be a Christian, uh, what did it mean to live by faith? How were Christians supposed to live their lives after declaring their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? James, he seeks to address this for the believers of that time young and new believers who needed more guidance as to how to live uh, the Christian faith. Uh, for our college students, I figured that would be really helpful because many of them are young believers. They're trying to figure out what it means to live out the practical aspects, the practical realities of what it means to follow Christ. But of course, as we know, regardless of whether you are young in the faith or you're old in the faith, Jesus, oh, sorry, James is always a good reminder for any believers of any age as it provides us with the instructions and guidance on what it means to have faith that is being worked out. 
And before we look at, look at our passage today, which is going to be on verses 2 to 4, I just wanted to go ahead and cover who James is, because it helps to know the person who wrote the epistle, as that will give us a better insight as to why he wrote what he wrote. When we look at verse 1, James, he starts off his epistles with, with a greeting like many others, giving his name to indicate the authorship of the letter. The letter itself was written by James, the brother of Jesus, not James and John, the, son of, uh, the sons of Zebedee. And when you think about who James is and the fact that he is the brother of Jesus, that's actually really impressive. Or just on the uh, basis of the fact that you know that he is associated with Jesus, which is something that Christians back then knew and even today. Now, I don't know about you, but if I knew someone really famous, and I've not had the privilege to even meet someone that famous, unfortunately, but I'm sure you guys who are in L.A., and as you go to, I don't know, like Hollywood Boulevard or where, whatever, I'm sure you had to have run into someone who was famous. Uh, and if it was me, I'd be inclined to name drop that person in any conversation, uh, regardless of whatever the conversation is. The conversation could be about, oh, where should we go for lunch? And I can be like, if I met LeBron James, I would have been like, hey, you know who likes lunch? LeBron James, right? And given that James is the brother of Jesus, if he wanted to, he could really bring that fact up anywhere, right? Even in the epistle that he's writing. Not only that, but James was a prominent figure during the time uh, in that particular season, uh, not only because he was the brother of Jesus, but James was considered to be a leader in the Jerusalem church. Given that the roles of the apostles were to typically go out and spread the gospel, someone had to lead the church in Jerusalem, and James was that guy. People trusted in his leadership and followed his leadership. And so he would be kind of like the equivalent of a senior pastor of today. And lastly, James, he also had the moniker James the Just. Uh, because he lived in a very righteous way to the point where it was very obvious to the people that watched and saw, see, seen his life. And because of that, uh, he was known as many as James the Just. And so if you think about it, James, he has quite the spiritual resume. He... And you would think that because he did, that it would come out in his writing. He could have mentioned any of those facts in chapter when he began this epistle. He could say, James, I am James, the brother of Jesus. I am James, the just. I am James, the leader of the Jerusalem church. And all of those things would have been factually accurate. However, when we look at verse 1, it says he's James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you all know the word bondservant is, uh, is the Greek word doulos. It's describing a person who has given over full control of his life to his master. It's the type of person who has absolute obedience and loyalty to the one he calls Lord, understanding that his Lord provides him with everything. Not only that, this specific word in the Greek, it actually describes a slave who was born of a slave, rather than one who was made a slave. There's a separate word for that, but doulos is referring to someone who was born of a slave. And this is significant because James is essentially saying that he has, uh, he has, given, he has been giving new birth through faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about the transformation that occurred in his life so that whereas James was once the brother of Jesus, the earthly brother, he understood Jesus to be his Lord, his Savior, his King. And how amazing, if you think about it, that humility of James, right? James does not try to make much of himself. He quickly points to the Lord that saved him. And although he could have chosen to make much of himself, 
because he understands who he is, because he knows what he's been saved from, this is his only identifier, to be a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in many ways, James is like all many of us who grew up in the church, who heard the Sunday school stories about who Jesus was. Because like James, we grew up with Jesus. Maybe not in the same way that James did, but we are familiar with who he is because of all those different lessons that we heard through Sunday school. But just like James, even though we knew, knew of James, we did not truly know Jesus. Sorry, even though we knew of Jesus, we did not truly know Jesus and even rejected Jesus. John 7, 5 tells us that his brothers, which includes James, did not believe in Jesus and the things that he was saying. In fact, they thought he was crazy and a lunatic. James did not follow Jesus, uh, seeing, as Jesus, seeing Jesus as someone familiar, but not seeing who Jesus truly is. And that was us before we were saved, and for those that still don't believe in Jesus today. That Jesus is holy, that he is righteous. Uh, that in our sin, we were content to live a life that was far from Christ, content to live a life of spiritual deadness and bankruptcy, content to see Jesus as a good teacher or a moral upright man, but not God. By ourselves, we did not meet the standard of holiness of righteousness that God wanted us to meet, and we didn't even want to. And we know that the only just fitting punishment for sin is, as, is death, as it says in Romans 6.23, that the wages that the punishment for sin is eternal condemnation to have the fullness of the wrath of God be poured out upon us. Instead, in love, Jesus Christ emptied himself by becoming man and lived that perfect, righteous, holy life that we couldn't live. And Jesus took that punishment on our behalf so that we would no longer be punished, no longer be subject to the condemnation of God. Not only that, by his resurrection and his power over sin, for those that believe in Jesus Christ and worship him as Lord and Savior, we have newness of life. We are no longer condemned and seen as wicked sinners, but God, he declares us righteous because of the work of Christ. And this is what James eventually comes to understand. He gets it. He knows what he has been saved from. And so despite all his accolades, despite all his associations, he would describe himself as a bondservant because he perfectly understood who he is before God. That just as Paul says in Philippians 3.8, where everything that we have in this life is lost, that it's a negative gain compared to knowing Christ. So this identifier of being a bondservant is of surpassing value as in nothing is better than being a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And so it is with this heart, it is with this understanding that he writes this epistle. He wants to encourage the other saints with this in mind, to see them grow and mature. And really, when we see what is written in his letter, it really flows out from this understanding that he is a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so today, uh, in this passage, we're going to look at three essential attitudes uh, in James 1, 2 to 4, three essential attitudes you must embrace under trial so that you can be a growing bondservant of Jesus Christ. Number one is to rejoice in trial. We're going to see that in verse two. Number two is understand what trials produce. We're going to see that in verse three. And number three is to submit to God's maturing work in you. We're going to see that in verse four. So first point, rejoice in trial. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Right off the bat, James gives his readers a command to consider it all joy when you encounter various trials. And this word consider is an imperative, meaning that it's not a suggestion, it's not a nice idea, or something for you to chew on and decide for yourself. 
whether you should do it or not. No, this is a command direct directly from scripture scripture to rejoice when trials are at hand. Because we know, we know that joy is not something natural. It's not a natural response for response for us to have when we encounter hardships and trials. There's usually frustration and complaining and sadness and even anger when it comes to encountering troubles in your life. And James knows that. He's not blind to this because he himself is a sinner saved by the grace of God. He knows what it, is, what it means to go through hardships and difficulties. And so he's not telling you to consider it all joy because it's easy to do and it's second nature to us. He's not diminishing anyone's pain and that it's easy to consider it all joy. But at the same time, because he understands from his humility that he's a slave to the one who took away the greatest pain, facing the wrath of God. He's telling believers to rejoice because everything else is immeasurably lesser. And so for those who are dispersed, taken from their homes, their families, persecuted, put to death, James can still say rejoice because the unfathomable agony has been paid full by Christ. He's calling for joy because he knows it's possible for those that are bondservants of Christ Jesus. That's who he's writing to, right? He's writing to Christians those who have experienced the amazing joy of salvation. We see that because in this verse, in verse 2, it says, my brethren. He's writing to fellow believers who have tasted the same delight in being part of God's family. He under understands this unique joy that God provides to believers. And for those of you that are saved, you know what I'm talking about. This joy that we experience is not an immediate and temporary joy, but it's an extended one. Where unlike the world's joy, where it, where be, uh, which becomes the opposite of difficulty and hardship, it's a joy that can exist even side by side with trials and difficulties because it's a supernatural one, the one that God gives us. But James also knows that Christians can struggle with joy in the midst of trials, which is why he gives this commandment to consider. And the word consider is a continual ongoing action, meaning that you can say it, you can say it's something like, when you continue to consider it all joy or don't stop considering it all joy and so forth. James, he's asking for a determined commitment from every believer that reads his epistle to rejoice, to commit to be joyful because they know that the joy comes from God. And for those that are saved, you know that there's a great reason to rejoice at the fact that joy comes from God because our God is not some vengeful, not some sadistic, dictator like God who forces people into happiness when times are hard, but rather he's a good God. And not only that, but he's a good and sovereign God. Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You can rejoice in your trials because you understand even in your trials, God is working together for good. Genesis 50.20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. Even though Joseph, he's gone through so much, he can consider it good because he knows the sovereign will of God. And since you know that God is good and you know that everything that he does is good, your trials and your difficulties are also being used for good. And though you can't see it in the moment, as believers in Jesus Christ, you can make a commitment to rejoice because you know that God is working in the background. And even this commitment and this, this deter determination to rejoice is not an empty one. 
It's not like you just kind of will it to happen. You just kind of force yourself to make it happen. It's not some empty mantra that you chant or some enlightenment exercise that you do. It's possible to make this active determination of rejoicing because God works within you to help you to be committed to joy. Philippians 2, 12 through 13 is one of my favorite passages. It says, so then my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to empower you to work it out and rejoice in trial because ultimately he is working within you. God has given you everything that you would ever need, which is himself. Literally, 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are a temple of God, that the spirit of God dwells within you? So from producing that joy and making the commitment to continue to considering it all joy is God is from God himself. But why is it that even so you sometimes find, find it hard and you struggle in trials? Why is it hard for you to want to rejoice or even feel like a Christian sometimes if the creator of the world is working within you? Why do you sometimes find yourself asking God for more strength or more of his spirit when he has literally given you everything that you need and more? Well, it's because sometimes the harsh reality is, is that you need to get out of your own way. Although God works within you, you can hinder that process by not relying on him or depending on him. It's kind of like if you, uh, it's kind of like if you had like an external power bank, you know, kind of like an external charging thing that you use if you were going camping or something and you needed something to charge your phone so that it'll last through the weekend. It has all the power that you need. But if you don't know how to work it or if you don't know where to plug the cords in, you're not going to be able to charge the equipments that you need. And your phone's going to die and you're going to be miserable because you don't have your phone. Uh, but it's, it's kind of like that. The analogy falls a little bit short because unlike a generator or a power bank, God's power is infinite, right? It never runs out. So you can certainly get in the way to work out your faith by considering it all joy because you're not relying on the God who is providing you that joy and that commitment to rejoice. So how do we rely on him? What do we do to depend on him so that we can utilize the fullness of who he is? 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10. Many of you know this passage. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. For Christ's sake, when I am weak, then I am strong. So in our weakness, as we, if we rely on God more, the result is that we end up drawing closer to God and realize more of who he is and experience more of his power. It's when we submit to God that his power is made perfect. And Paul understood this, that as he was experiencing a particularly trying time in his life, God was using this trial to teach Paul to rely on him more, to depend on him more. That if Paul acted strong, even though he wasn't, he would be frustrated because he wouldn't be able to deal with that particular situation, that particular trial in the proper way. So once Paul figured out and understood that God's grace is sufficient, that God's power is made perfect, that the more Paul submitted to God in his weakness, he can see the display of the power of God 
all the more clearly. Not only that, Paul says that he's going to boast in his weakness, that he's not going to hide his weakness anymore and pretend to be something that he's not. Furthermore, Paul states that he'll be content, which is to be well-pleased, which is to be even delighted at his weaknesses, at his insults, distresses, persecutions, difficulties, to be able to rejoice in all these things, and that he is capable of doing these things because he becomes strong as a result of God's strength. So this thorn in the flesh that Paul was experiencing no longer became a pain, but a cause for Paul to rejoice instead. So going back to James, as he writes, as James writes this passage, one implication of considering it all joy in a trial is to understand that trials become opportunities. Because in everything that we, I just mentioned today, trials will bring you to a better understanding of who God is and bring you closer to him as a result. If it reminds you of the joy of salvation, that God is good and that he works all things for good that he works within you and that his power will be made in full display at your weakness. So the more you draw closer to, uh, the more you draw closer to God as a result of your rejoicing in your trials, the more you're going to realize that they are opportunities to grow closer. And that should actually cause you to rejoice even more because for the Christians, what greater joy is there to, than to know our God better and get closer to him. After all, he's the one that we love the best. Second point, understand what trials produce. Understand what trials produce. That comes from verse three, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. So in James 3, uh, 1, 3, he delves a little bit deeper as to the point of rejoicing in trials. And that is to know the testing of your faith produces endurance. The word knowing here is not like a factual knowing. It's not some sports statistics that you can rattle off about your favorite team or the rankings of universities or trivias about American histories or whatnot. This word is an experiential knowing. It's beyond merely factual, and it comes from that personal experience that we gain as a result of knowing Christ. For example, you guys know what the best places to eat in LA are or what your favorite ice cream places is. Why? Not just because you looked it up on Yelp, which by the way is like the whole website devoted to people sharing their experience, but because you tried it for yourself to be able to say, I like this place or I like this place because I've experienced those places. Or for myself, how I know that I can't eat Mexican food anymore because my stomach can't take it, which is really tragic because I'm from San Diego. And here, uh, James is describing a knowing that Christians have experienced and will, will continue to experience. Verse 3, when James says the testing of your faith, it equates to what he says in verse 2 about when you encounter various trials. That the various trials will lead to the testing of your faith. And as believers, we will experience the testing of our faith all throughout our lives, whether big or small. Some might be big and dramatic or pronounced moments, such as the death of a loved one. Uh, but many times, you will experience the testing of your faith in the everyday, mundane moments of your life. Or, for example, the moms in this room, you know that sometimes your kids can, let's, let's be frank, your kids can drive you crazy. They can drive you up the wall because they're not listening, they're not paying attention, or you tell them to do something for like the thousandth time, and they just do it again. Or maybe uh, there's, um, for those, that are, that, those of you that are working, uh, there's drama in the workplace, and because of that, you are tempted to gossip about it. 
Or maybe you come to church and you want to avoid meeting new people because you're a big, huge introvert and that makes you uncomfortable. You fill in the blank. But the more than but more than you may realize, even as young as you can be or old as you can be in your faith, your faith is being tested by the various trials in your life. And James promises testing of faith. He promises trials. Back in verse 2, when he says, you will encounter various trials, it says, when, not if. And although some of these trials can come internally from your own sinful heart, they will also come externally as well. Jesus himself, he promises this in John 15, 20. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul backs that up by saying in 2 Timothy 3, 12, Indeed, all who desire to live godly life or live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Peter further affirms this by staying in 1 Peter 4, 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. So whether it be that you are mocked for your faith or your family is enraged that you're getting too involved at church, uh, the reality is these testing of faith, the various trials will happen one way or another. But again, there's a point to trials, to the testing of your faith. It's not testing for testing's sake. It's not meant so that you just suffer and learn to deal with it for no apparent reason. No, there is a reason. The reason is to produce endurance, as it says in verse 3. And what is endurance? Well, it's a core asset of the believer. Endurance is often synonymous with patience. But whereas patience is most needed for the times of affliction and hardship, one commentator say that endurance is a permanent inner quality, which is strengthened over time. Endurance is the steadfastness that you develop so that when things don't always go your way, you don't resort to sin, but you commit yourself to God. It is the perseverance of the saints or the security of the believer. It's the idea that God will never let you go, that your salvation is guaranteed, that you will endure as a believer because God is upholding you. And as you are tested, God will help you to grow. God will help you to endure. And it's like the parable of the sower we see in Matthew 13, 3 to 9. If you remember that story, most of you know that, right? The first soil, it just utterly fails, right? There's no acceptance of God's truth at all. The middle two soil there is rocky and thorny. There is some acceptance, but over time they fall away as well. There's no endurance. Once trials and temptations come, they are ruined. They fall away. Only the last one, the last soil it endures, it perseveres. And when Jesus explains that whole parable in verses 18 to 23, he mentions how the middle two soils fail because they were either hit with affliction or carried off by the deceitfulness of wealth and the worries of the world. And the thing is, is that whatever the middle two soil experienced, the last one experienced as well. Meaning that as believers, you will face that too. You will be tested. True believers that have the heart of the good soil will face the afflictions and worries just like the other two. But unlike the other two, the believers will endure and come out of it stronger. They will come out of it stronger and better because God will strengthen you. He will strengthen your faith in times of difficulty as you seek to honor him during that time, in the times of worry, times of afflictions, and even times of temptations and the deceitfulness of the world. So even when life doesn't go your way and it becomes hard, when you know and trust that the Lord established each of your steps, as it says in, states in Proverbs 16, 9, that the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his step. That the Lord directs your steps. You have confidence in that. 
and trust that God has a plan, even if you don't know what's happening. And we see examples of that in scripture, right? Where people have suffered affliction and difficulties and yet still have faith in God and came out a bit stronger. And that's really, uh, we see that in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. Uh, if not, I'll just go ahead and read it to you. Hebrews 11, starting in verse 37. It says, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The people... Before Christ, they did not receive what was promised to them, which means that they did not get to see the fulfillment of the Messiah. They didn't see the Messiah realized, but they were confident that one day it would be fulfilled. And you can attest to that, right, as being on this side of the cross. You have fully received this promise. You're on the other side. And because you have this great cloud of witnesses who ran faithfully before you, even as they didn't see the promise of the Messiah fulfilled in their lifetime, and but still trusted in God and were strengthened in their faith to endure, you too can push forward with endurance. And the thing about Hebrews 11 that should bring you more joy is that when you read some of these people and you realize, how come they're in there, right? Like Samson, why is Samson in there? I think that's something that many people wonder. The faith that these people have, they're not based on their own faith. It's the faith that God gives them. It's the power of God in their lives. They're not faithful because they're so great, but they're faithful because God is so great. God is the sustainer of their faith, and as he's, a, he's also of yours as well. He will sustain your faith, and he will be the one to help you to endure. In fact, the entirety of the Trinity is involved in your endurance of your faith. John 10, 29, my father, this Jesus talking, who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand, talking about God the father. John 17, 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them. Again, this is Jesus talking, and not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture will be fulfilled. John 14, 16, I will ask the father, and he will give you another helper, that's talking about the Holy Spirit, that he, will, he may be with you forever. So the Holy Spirit, the, the entirety of the Trinity is involved in keeping your faith. But this endurance is tied to the first part in verse 2, that you would consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, that you would rejoice when you are tested, and as you are rejoicing, that it will produce endurance. So it's not that your faith is just tested and boom, you become a more enduring believer with stronger faith. No, it's all interconnected. As you struggle for joy, as you fight for that joy, God will reward you by helping you to produce more endurance so that the next time you face that similar trial or even greater trial, you will be more strengthened to deal with that trial and endure much better. So the question you have to ask yourself then is, do you fight for joy? Not joy for joy's sake, but because it'll strengthen your faith. 
to have endurance and to persevere because you because you desire for your faith to be stronger so that you can worship and honor God better in your life? Is that really uh, the attitude of your life? So you want to examine yourself and see for yourself whether endurance is growing in your life or not. And lastly, number three, submit to God's maturing work in you. This is found in verse four. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So as we've been discussing, the entire process of God working within you from being able to rejoice to producing endurance in your life, God is the one strengthening you and helping you throughout the entire time. And the ultimate goal of why you should persevere during trials with joy and why endurance is necessary is because this culminates to God's completing his work within you. Philippians 1.6, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This word work in Philippians 1.6 is the same word we find, find here in James, that perfect result. God doesn't just save you and leave you to your own devices. What he started in you, he will surely finish it. He's going to complete his work that he started in you. He's not going to suddenly lose interest in you. He's not going to say, well, that's, your, that's good enough. Let me move on to someone else and leave you to your own devices. No, he will be the one to, he started with you and he's going to be the one to be with you to the end. When your faith eventually turns to sight and you are standing before him, perfected and glorified. And this perfect result or this perfect work that God is doing is perfect, meaning that there's no error. The implication for that is that how God is growing you right now and how you submit to God's will as a result of the growth he produces in you is all within his perfect sovereignty. And hopefully that gives you some comfort because I know that at church, uh, I know uh, that really when you go anywhere uh, in like a Christian setting, comparisons can happen from time to time, right? You see someone in the church, sometimes they have leaps and bounds of spiritual growth and you're wondering, why am I not like that? Why am I not growing in the same capacity or the same rate? And because of that, you might feel insecure. You might feel worthless, even because you don't think you're honoring God as much by the supposed lack of growth. But I'll tell you this right now, that if you are walking the walk of faith, you're submitting to God and, the, and working out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God works within you, then you can be confident and trust that God is growing you exactly the way he's meant to grow you. He's not slow or fast with his work. He doesn't procrastinate or do it hastily. He is perfect in the speed in which he is working within you to grow you, to equip you. And this perfect result, this perfect work that he's doing in you is so that you will be spiritually mature, to be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Romans 5, 3 to 5, not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance proven character, proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The more we consider it all joy in our various trials and our faith is tested, our endurance growing, this is going to lead to that perfect result of maturity, of proven character. Maturity is when someone's character is proven over time. It's been tested and tried by the various trials as you fight and you struggle to rejoice. God, he helps you to persevere. He helps you to endure. He refines you and strengthens you as a person of God. 
And as a result, if you are mature, people can rely on you. They can depend on you because after time, you have proven yourself in your consistent character that you've developed and endured over time. You have integrity. You have consistency. You are who you say you are. You have proved yourself over and over again as someone who loves God and loves other people in your life, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the changes that are happening in your life. You're someone who lacks nothing, as it says in James because you understand you have been given every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places and that in hard times, you will go back to God. You will submit to God for joy and trust that he is working in your life because everything that you need in life and godliness are found in his word. This doesn't mean you never struggle. This doesn't mean you never fall or never sin, but despite your flesh waging war against your soul to bring doubt and uncertainty, you have confidence that God is working within you and that even when you doubt, even when you fail to be, faith, faith, fail to be faithful, you understand God is always faithful because that's who he is. He never goes back on his character. And as your character matures, as your godly disposition grows stronger, it, be, it be, leads to a greater hope. Not that the hope itself is greater because we have the greatest hope, but rather your understanding of that hope of who you have in Christ, the hope of eternity, the hope that God loves you and is working all things together for good to complete you one day, that hope grows greater. So again, when you understand this intention of why we receive the various trials in your life, it will result in that hope. And whereas the, wor the world without God will feel hopeless when trials become too much, the trials that you face as believers will grow your hope and your joy and your longing to be with God. How does this submission look like? The submitting to God to grow you and mature you so that you, we can find, you can find your hope in him. Where, where can we see that? One great example uh, is something that we see in the Old Testament. Uh, many of you know this story, is familiar with it. This is the story of Abraham and Isaac in Genesis 22. So uh, if you want, you can go ahead and turn there with me. Genesis 22. This is the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac. Genesis 22. So it says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Now, if we were to stop right there, you would think that question, this particular question that God asked Abraham would incite some kind of shock or awe, right? Then that Abraham, we would see how Abraham would be bothered by what God said, right? There would be some kind of back and forth saying, but God, why? You gave me this son to be this promised one. Like, why are you breaking your promise? You would think that there would be some kind of back and forth. After all, this was the only son uh, that God promised in his very old age, at an age where even back then it, it wasn't possible to have kids anymore. But Abraham doesn't do that, right? In verse 3, it says Abraham rose early. Abraham rose early. That means he didn't drag his feet. He wasn't trying to pro procrastinate. There was no argument against God or even ask for an explanation. He just decided to do it, and he was punctual about it. For it to jump down to verse 5, it says, Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Did you catch that? We will worship and return to you. Abraham wasn't saying this. He's not saying, I'm going to come back. He's saying, we're going to come back. 
Abraham wasn't saying this with a lie. He was, this was a statement of faith that he's going to really return with Isaac. If you were to go down in verse uh, 8, it says, or verse 7, it says, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. So Abraham, he trusted in God's provision. Abraham didn't know that there was a ram that God was going to provide, but he knew God was going to provide some way or another. But he also fully, uh, fully thought he was going to have to sacrifice his son. Why? Because in verses 9 and 10, and really all of the rest of the, you know the story, he like ties his son, he puts him on the altar to sacrifice him. Um, but as we know, God stops Abraham. He tells him it was a test. Good job. Here's a ram. Kill it, right? And so that's pretty much how it goes. But why did, you, you kind of have to think for yourself. This is a Sunday school story, so it, it might be easy to just gloss over something just like, oh, okay, cool, like nice story that I heard from when I was a kid. But why did Abraham obey God even though this was a seeming contradiction, right? Because this was a contradiction that Isaac was going to be the promised child, but God told Abraham, hey, go ahead and kill your child. Why did Abraham still obey God and not argue with that? Well, in Hebrews, back in chapter 11, uh, verses 17 and 19, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type. So Abraham, at this point, there was no Lazarus, right? There was no resurrection that happened. So Abraham never experienced a resurrection. He never saw a resurrection or even heard of his possibility during his time. So he didn't even think of the possibility that God would provide him with another sacrifice. But instead, he trusted so much in the power of God. He knew that God was so great because of all that he's experienced and seen with God that God would be able to do something even like a resurrection. He had hope in the power of God, that God would show his glory through a miracle that was never done before. And you might think, well, that's Abraham. He's always faithful. He's, he's that guy, right? He's Father Abraham. He's always been that type of God guy. But you have to remember what Abraham has gone through up to this point. He lied about Sarah, right? More than once. Didn't trust that God would protect him. And instead, uh, that telling he was telling people that Sarah was his sister, right? He didn't promise, he didn't, or he didn't trust in the promise that God would make him into a great nation and instead try to get out of situations using his own wit and his own deception. He had the whole thing with Ishmael, right? With another woman, uh, because he and Sarah were impatient with the promise of God to provide a son. So they tried to fulfill their on fulfill that on their own. Abraham, he, and not only that, he, had, he also had the whole thing with Lot. I mean, that's a little bit different. Uh, but he also had the, the issue with Lot where Lot, instead of showing deference and honor to Abraham by letting Abraham choose first, when Abraham was like, hey, why don't you choose? Lot should have been like, oh, no, no, you choose. You're, you're the one who took care of me. You're my elder. You should be the one to choose first. Instead, Lot was like, hey, I like that land. I'm going to go over there. Abraham, you can have whatever's left over, right? Abraham, he went through a lot. And God protected him every step of every way. God protected Abraham, even when his lies were revealed about Sarah. Instead of him being put to death, 
Uh, and he fulfilled the promise of a son after 25 years of waiting. Even when Abraham failed to be faithful, God was faithful to him. And even as Lot, he took the best lands, uh, he blessed Abraham with riches after riches. So throughout that whole process, uh, from Genesis 12, when we see Abraham all the way up to here in Genesis 22, God was growing Abraham. That through every trial that Abraham faced, God refined him. And even though there were bumps along the way with all of Abraham's flaw, to God, this was his perfect work. To complete the work he started in Abraham in his own perfect timing. So that by the time we get to chapter 22, here with the story of Isaac, Isaac, Abraham, he has no longer any doubt about God. and does not try to manipulate the situation in his own way. There's no questions. There's no trickery. There's no deceit. He trusts God fully and submits to him all because of the various trials he went through and the endurance he experienced, the growth that occurred as a result. And so he put his full hope in God that God can even raise people from the dead, even though he never saw it before. Abraham was no longer a man who was wishy-washy and unsure. He was a man of proven character as he submitted himself to God. No, and the cool thing is after chapter 22, you don't get any more stories about Abraham messing up. This is it. God worked in his heart and completed him. And so know this, that God will also do that to you. He will complete his work in you. So submit to him as a good bondservant should to his master. We know even someone like Job, who arguably suffered one of the greatest tragedies in man, mankind's history, as he suffered and struggled and doubted, was confident in his, his, in his assertion of what was to come after his suffering. Job 23.10, but he knows the way I take when he has tried me I shall come forth as gold. He didn't know how. He didn't know when or what it would take for his trials to be over. And he certainly didn't do everything perfectly. But he understood that he was being tested, that he was being tried. And like gold, he shall be refined and purified. And know that as you submit to God, as, you, as God, he's going to mature you. He's going to refine you. And you can be confident of that, that he will work in you. So in conclusion, we have looked at the three essential attitudes you must embrace under trial so that you can be a growing bond servant of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in trial, understand what trials produce, and submit to God's maturing work in you. And like I said, trials and challenges of life as a believer is inevitable. It's a reality that our Lord Jesus promises us, even in John 16, 33, in the world you will have tribulation. However, he also says, Take heart because he has overcome the world. The victory is in the Christian's grasp so that even as life may be hard, it may not, it's not going to last forever. First Peter 4.13, we looked at First Peter 4.12 earlier about how don't be surprised when trials come. But in this verse, in verse 13 right after, uh, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. You can keep on rejoicing because Christ will one day vindicate you and that you will rejoice at his coming, at the revealing of his glory. Romans 8, 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Similarly, our sufferings are not worthy compared to the glory to be revealed, not just Christ, but when we are glorified with him. We have so much more to look forward to so that we can look at trials with joy because we have a greater hope. Something so much better is coming. And you know, there's a phrase, uh, I'm sure you've heard of it, hindsight is 2020, right? That 
when you look back on things, you're like, oh, yeah, like that worked out the way it should. And that's so true for a believer, right? That phrase. We don't always know it in the moment of trials, but afterwards we can see how God is working us in us through that trial. But should not our foresight be 2020 as well? Not that we know what the future holds or how the trials will work out in our lives, but we know the one who do know. Though, though we may not know what will happen later on, we can be confident that we will come out of it like gold if we rejoice, understand, and submit. So ask yourself, what do you value? Do you value your own comfort of life more than your character? If so, trials will upset you. But if you value character more, the trials will strengthen you. Do you value the physical and the material more than the spiritual? If so, you will not be able to count it all joy. But the, if, if the spiritual, then you will rejoice like no other. And lastly, do you live only for the present and forget the future? If so, the trials will make you bitter. However, if you live for what is to come, the glory that is to be revealed, then the trials will make you better, a better bondservant of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this time and for the opportunity to go through your word. Uh, we thank you, Father, uh, that, that we have that hope, uh, that even as uh, we are sometimes fumbling down here, uh, not always knowing how to go about life and struggling and having difficulties, uh, we know that all of this is part of your perfect plan. And Lord, we thank you that even though we don't know how life, our life is always going to turn out or even how, how our day-to-day -day is going to turn out, uh, we can be confident that we worship a good and perfect Father who knows all things. And not only that, but is working within us, is never leaving us, is always there with us uh, to help us to become more and more like your Son. And so, Father, I pray uh, that this will be the attitude of all believers for the believers that are here, as well as just believers all over the world, uh, that when we encounter the difficulties of life, and we will, we know that, uh, that we will look at it as a way and a means uh, to give you more glory and uh, to give you praise. So, Lord, we thank you for this time, and in your son's name we pray. Amen.